find the cheapest that you can get for the best quality that you can get. Because a lot of people, they'll prioritize cheap. They'll look at it in the short run and they'll think, oh, this is gonna save me, you know, thousands or even hundreds of thousands or millions. But then it ends up costing them more. Welcome to Subscriptions Scaled, sponsored by Rebar Technology. Join us each week to hear from industry leaders in the subscription space, share their best tips and stories, and learn how you can up-level your subscription business today. Hello, listeners, and welcome to another episode of Subscription Scaled. I am your host, Nick Frederick. With me today are actually two guests. We got a little bit different of a format today. We have Reed and Brenda Epstein, who are the co-founders of Smart Art Box. Guys, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. Thank you. Well, I think this will be fun today. Not only are we talking to two co-founders, but we're talking to spouses as well. So I'll be very interested to hear about how you guys have started this and what each roles are within the company. But why don't we start with kind of the story of Smart Art Box? How and when did you guys start it? We started in 2014, and it really stemmed from traveling. Reed and I are really big travelers, and he was actually living in Spain that year and been doing a little traveling as well while he was living abroad. I was coming across a lot of different art mediums through the different cultures, things like that. And I'm an artist. So as we're communicating, you know, we're thinking about starting a business together where we could be flexible and continue traveling and then just figuring out a, a common interest, in, which was art. And so we thought of doing a subscription box where we could bring in different cultural and different mediums into a box so you can try different things every month. And so it really was from that originally just thinking of what other cultures are doing. You know, he saw some like sand art, right? And just things that aren't just your typical paint, watercolor, things like that. And so that kind of stemmed that idea. And then eventually just created a more practical use where every month we want to share a new technique and projects of something you could do with a different art medium. So you try different things instead of being stuck to the one art medium. That's typically artists, they focus on one of their favorite mediums and do that all the time. And so it's nice to have a, an outlet to try something different where you don't feel like you're so focused on, you know, making it perfect because that's your medium. You can just try something completely new and just do it for fun. That's kind of how that began. And that was in 2014. By the end of the year, we had a business model and just did kind of a really soft launch in a way. It was at the end of the year. And 2013 was our big first year. One other thing I'll add is that we also came to the idea of the of art being something that we would like show how to use because she was working with a charity at the time where she would go and help inner city children that had like abusive homes. And she would show them straight like how to do different art techniques and use different mediums. And so kind of married the two and came up with more art. Can see how one of those kind of folded into the other. So are you guys the ones that are kind of curating this box each month of what new art form they're going to uh, be introduced to? That's uh, I'm the one that comes up with uh, the projects and all the materials for the month and then read sources, everything and has the communications with all of our contacts. Awesome. So where and how do you get the ideas, Brenda, for what you're going to put into the box? Is it just what's interesting you at the moment or how do you come up with it? I research trends. Because one of the things is, for example, acrylic paint, there's so many ways to use it, right? It's not about putting it on a canvas with a brush. Like they're a big trend the last few years has been acrylic pouring where, you know, you thin out your paint, you pour it in a cup, and then you just kind of let it go crazy on the canvas, right? And so just like that, there's other applications. So I try to research new popular techniques. Sometimes people are doing um, 
painting on leather, right? Or, or doing glass painting, things like that. And so I look at trends like that. We go to trade shows to try to see what's new. So that's another big one. We try to reach out to all of our manufacturers and see, is there anything that you're releasing that's brand new, you know? And so try to build a box around that. But that's, and that's actually that's the biggest question I get all the time. There's one other thing that she'll typically do, and that's she'll select something that she thinks is really cool. And even if it's not super art related, maybe it's crap more crafty. We try to find a way to sneak it in so that people can give it a shot and try it because uh, there's a lot of techniques that you can learn that are outside of the fine art world that really help your fine art skills improve. And so we try to help people, I guess, explore outside of their box. Like one time we did a body art box which is very different. It's not a fine art technique, right? And so it could be a little scary or just not really what you want to do. So it was like a temporary ink, right? Uh, like henna, but it was called Jagua. But in tandem with that, I did a sketching project. So we included a sketchbook and a big graphite sketch set with different tools. So you can just work on a graphite project and sketching. And if you wanted to, we include a transfer paper so that you can then put that on your body. So that's kind of like the combination there where like you had a sketchbook and it was a sketching lesson, talked about graphite and then using different blending tools. And then you can transfer that over into, you know, a temporary tattoo in a, in a way if you wanted. Interesting. I feel like we could probably spend the entire episode just talking about how you come up with these ideas and the different ones that you've done. I do think it's fascinating. I mean, I'm, I'm an engineer at heart, so art doesn't like come naturally to me. I think if you put paints in front of me, I would go all right, what do you want me to draw? You know, it's not like I've got that immediate, oh, I want to create this. So I think it's it's great for people who are interested in art to, to your point, explore different ways or try to find something that's interesting to them. If there's any box, you know, or a type of art that resonates with them, do they have the opportunity to buy more of, of that or kind of explore that more if body art is something that they decide, hey, I want to continue on with this? Yeah. We have those available as soon as they release. So there, it's a surprise every month, right? But once they release, then they go up as a previous project on our website and you can just purchase that specific box. So if you liked it and you want more, you can get another. Or if you're someone who doesn't really like the surprise, you can go through all the past boxes and choose the project that's right for you. So if you really wanted a watercolor box, you can go through and find one and select that box instead. So how are you guys dealing with that from a inventory and fulfillment perspective? If you're keeping past boxes available for purchase or selection by the customers, you once you create a box, you're kind of keeping that box. So how are you managing through that? We do. We keep them on stock for, we'll say, about six months to nine months. But we actually work hand in hand with a charity called Artists for Trauma, where they use art supplies to help people who've gone through some type of life-altering event that has injured them so you know maybe they can't walk anymore something big has happened and now they they need help and therapy and so artists for trauma helps them through art, therapy. through art therapy and it helps with dexterity helps with getting emotions out and we donate art supplies and kind donations and help them that way so you know we have projections on what we expect for our subscription base but then we usually order more beyond that. And so that'll be for our previous projects and then also for our donations. So we have those projects up until they sell out or we just keep them for about six months and then we just decide to donate the rest. Gotcha. Okay. That certainly makes sense. Keeps things fresh. Has the business model been subscription from the start? Yes. It's been subscription from the start. Um, we had interactions with people who had built subscription boxes early on 
some of the like some of the starters and when we were thinking of how to build a business that we would be able to manage subscription boxes kind of came along and we decided that's the route we wanted to go we're just flexible with our time being able to work remotely beginning we use uh, fulfillment centers and so we were able to continue traveling like i said we were in the beginning and so we worked from anywhere and then had everything fulfilled through a fulfillment center which we don't anymore but that was the beginning of of our box we brought it in-house because um I think we just decided that fulfillment centers were, it, it took too much out of our hands. Too much is a really important aspect of the business out of our hands. So we brought it in house, we got a warehouse and we started, you know, we hired our first hires. And we're growing too. So we needed yeah. more control and really access to the product on a regular basis and just more room as well, right? Because you're limited with a fulfillment center. You have a certain space allotted and you, as you increase space, you pay for that space also with storage after the boxes is sent out. So it was just time, you know, we had a big project coming up and speed also the fulfillment speed. So there's with a fulfillment center, you have to receive things within a certain time frame, and then they'll be able to fulfill it and ship it out within a certain time frame. And sometimes things are needed, late. we needed a little bit more flexibility in our own control to be able to just, which happened immediately as soon as we moved out. We received something the day that it would have had to ship out. And because we had it in our own warehouse, we were able to inventory, check for quality, and then pack it and ship it all really quickly. So how long ago was that when you brought it in-house? March of 2019. Yeah. So about a year's time before the pandemic came along. and Yeah. Right. That helped a lot, to be honest. In what ways? So with the pandemic, obviously things got out of your control. So if it was still with the fulfillment center, then we would have been at the mercy of whatever the fulfillment center was capable of doing, then being able to manage everybody else's product and just anything that could go wrong, especially in a warehouse. If a pandemic, if something hits, everybody's gone and there's nothing we can do about it. But having our own warehouse, we could work on it on ourselves. And even if it meant just the two of us going in and which happened, <laughs> which happened, <Yes>. fulfilling, it, <laughs> it was just the two of us fulfilling and we were able to really manage it. So you are two years into it and feel like that was the right move. Very much so. Well, since then, we've actually moved warehouses twice because we kept running out of space. Really? So we just yeah. moved into our new space in March this year. Mm-hmm. And we're hoping this is kind of our last home for a while, at least Tired of moving. five years. Yeah, we got a really big space. So Uh, that we can grow into and uh, the thing is is that we have special collaborations and those are big um, special edition boxes and so the volume for that is a lot larger than our subscription so we need the space for all the product all the boxes and then to have a team and uh, we're kind of on a good repeat pattern of having these collaborations where it made sense to get a bigger space even though for our monthly boxes we might not need such a large space it's enough so Nobody likes to move. Never fun. But it's been a good problem, right? You've had to move for growth concerns or for growth reasons, right? It's always a good problem. But when, you know, just like when you look back fondly. <laughs> <laughs> when you're loading a truck, it doesn't always feel like a good problem, does it? No, no, it does not. Not on your 15th load of that year. Besides running out of space, was there any other impetus or kind of point where you said, okay, this is now the next phase for us. We're willing to take that leap and go into the bigger space. Was it certain metric of members? Was it a revenue metric or what was it for you guys? Well, we were seeing growth with our numbers. So we realized that very soon we were going to need more space anyways, just within our own company. 
And then these collaborations on top of having these larger numbers, which means that by having larger numbers on your constant subscription, you can't receive everything in the same month. When you're smaller, you could receive anything you're going to ship in May, you can receive it in April. But as you get bigger, you have to start being able to receive early. You have to be able to receive in, you know, if you're going to ship in May, maybe March, February, which means you have to store it for a longer period of time. It takes up space. You have to be able to manage it. When you have a smaller space, you can't really keep track of everything too well. So you could maybe lose or even break things. So you need more space to maneuver things. And then as we do these collaborations, like Brenda was talking about, we need even more space for potential big, huge moments where it's like two, three months, our entire warehouse is flooded and then we can fulfill everything and, and then we're pretty empty, but we need that capability. Was this the first subscription business that either of you have started or been involved in? Started, yes. I've been involved in others with other people, but started, yes, this was our first subscription well, as a business. Consultant, yeah, as a as consultant, a I was a part of other, other business. Before subscription boxes, I was a consultant for scalability efficiency. So you came into this somewhat knowing what to expect. Yes and no. Every subscription box is, you know, very different in what its base model is. So art being a pretty different medium than what I'd worked with before, it was a bit of a jump, but it worked out. <laughs> Any particular things come to mind that you've learned along the way that were surprises or maybe just more challenging than you thought they were going to be? Identifying our target market. We started off initially thinking that we were aiming for seasoned veteran artists. And then we slowly moved to maybe more people who are just artsy and then continue to move to people who are more hobbyists. Because what we found was seasoned veteran artists, they had their trade, they knew what they wanted to do and they you know, can't teach an old dog new tricks. People who are artsy, they typically buy a lot of art supplies. So even though we're sending very new and trendy art supplies and trying to get people to try new things, they would still have a good deal of what we were sending already in their arsenal and you know they would say oh this is great like i like the fact that you guys are sending what we already like but i already have it. i already have it so you know we saw that happening a lot with bloggers and arts artsy bloggers that they would have a lot of what we were sending because there's only so many things that can be like the best brush or the best pencil so and if we're sending the best pencil and they already have the best pencil then there's not much there new so then we moved to hobbyists and we found that hobbyists were really the more of the demographic that we're interested because our box is very based around like it's a cohesive box. Everything we send is everything you need to be able to do this project. And so you don't need things from outside. And so that allowed them to... And there's a project guide. So there's two projects that you can follow along step by step to use your materials. I think we found that hobbyists really appreciate that and, and enjoy the process versus, um, you know, more experienced artists really don't want to follow, a, uh, you know, a project and, you know, they just want to pick up whatever they have and do their own thing, which is great as well. But then they run into the problem where they were getting a lot of repeat things that they already had. But it's kind of been a work in progress. doesn't mean they don't enjoy it. It's just we found that our better demographic is, you know, mm -hmm. obvious. Never underestimate people's love for a bonus piece of candy. All right. That's an interesting little tidbit there. Tell me more. It's surprising, but we didn't think it would, should be added. We thought, you know, it's candy and that's not really a part of this art. And we kept seeing, you know, people going on about this candy. So we decided, you know what, let's try some really cool candy. And we started trying to add little pieces of candy and people just loved it. And they so just get so excited. You know, I think it's just a little bonus, like getting stickers and little freebies, things like that. 
you know, maybe a little separate from your the theme of your box in a way just excites people and they're just kind of it's a treat. And we didn't expect it to be such a big deal, but we've had so many comments about looking for their candy. It's just, just interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, we've had messages saying, hey, I, my box didn't come with a candy this month. And it's literally like a single serving, you know, taffy or, or jelly beans, right? But we've had messages <laughs> like, oh, my box had no candy. So it's important to people, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Interesting. These hobbyists, are, are they typically adults or are you targeting kids or teenagers as well? Adults and maybe teenagers with a knack for art, but most of the time adults. And if it is teenagers or younger, it's they're doing it with their parents. Gotcha. So adults in particular, let's go back a little over a year, who may have an affinity for art, suddenly found themselves at home with nothing else to do and a pandemic that onset. I assume this was a good scenario for you guys, but what happened? Let's not say good scenario. Let's not say good scenario just because, you know, pandemic wasn't a good thing. But yes, all the art world, actually, that one thing that happened that we didn't expect was that because people are buying more of our subscription box, they're buying more of all the art supplies. So getting a hold of art supplies became actually increasingly difficult because all of the art companies that had projected for the next year now sold out within a month for an entire year's worth of art supplies. When you come to them and you tell them, hey, you know, I want to buy art supplies, and they say, well, we have none. Uh, <laughs> yeah. so that was well, they had issues with, yeah, selling that and then also getting even packaging. That was really yeah. hard for them, right? Because all the pa- most of the packaging comes from China. And so just getting the bottles for their paints, right, or the blister packaging, things like that. So that really delayed things because of the volume of orders and that the growth that the art industry had at least online, like yeah. last year. Another thing is that, you know, our box is very much to expose people to new art supplies. So that's kind of a, a marketing mentality for a lot of the art companies. And during the pandemic, they weren't really looking for new marketing because they sold out of all their products. So that pushing the, the typical marketing mentality didn't really hit home for them as much. Wow. How did you guys deal with not being able to get supplies or maybe get packaging? Did you have to get creative with how you were fulfilling your boxes? We found new people along the way because of it. Uh, yeah. Tried new new brands. Tested a lot of brands to make sure that we were still getting the quality we needed, but with new brands. So a lot of, I think, I think a lot of new brands ended up getting a lot of exposure because of it. I mean, overall, we had long-standing relationships with a lot of companies. So they were We'll, like, we had already placed orders for many months in advance, so they were still like holding those orders for us. So we kind of got to ride out most of the pandemic without worrying too much. We were like a year ahead, and we had already pretty much kept quantity. So getting more quantity was a difficult part, but getting right when we needed it, but getting the product that we like the base product that we needed was not too difficult because we had already kind of prepared for it. Also that move to a larger warehouse was probably quite fortuitous where you were able to kind of stock on the shelves further in advance than you were capable of when you had smaller storage, right? We started telling our vendors to just ship it to us instead of waiting because we didn't want to risk it getting yeah. taken off the shelf. Just send it, send it, I'll take it. It happened once, we learned from our mistake, we told yeah. them to send it off. So as you guys have grown, and, and well, I guess really all the way back to when you launched, looking at the website itself, the technology and tools that you guys have put into place to you know, build this business, to be, have a presence online, and then do fulfillment, manage subscribers, accept payments. How have you guys made those decisions along the way? Have you looked for tools that you could pull off the shelf and implement easily? Have you built it from the ground up? How have you guys made those types of decisions? 
Uh, we a lot of research looking into different tools. Um, as a scalability and efficiency consultant, I was always looking for new tools, new programs. software and programs to make things easier. So that's just a consistent thing for me as it was. So it wasn't like going too far out of my my comfort zone. And, you know, just constantly learning new new um, software just had to happen. It still has to happen. You can't sit and wait for the software that you want to come out to come out. So you just sometimes have to work with development teams. Neither of us are developers, so we'd have to work with development teams to make certain software that we wanted work, work the way that we wanted them to. Definitely. One of the things that I feel like you might not notice because you do this so naturally, but Reed's constantly having demos set up for different companies that he's finding. You know, So I think he's constantly doing research and finding if maybe there's a better processing, you know, merchant, right? Or yeah. or another software, another plugin. And we do demos regularly. And I think, you know, but I think that's important to always have someone on your team that's just checking to make sure you have the best system in place. And maybe as you're growing too, things changed for us. So we have continued to um, change and, and still piece together what we want, you know, out of our processing Merchant uh, service fees, things like that. Things like that, or, so, or inventory uh, programs. We're still testing things, and I think that's probably going to continue mm-hmm. as we grow. Part of what I always make sure I, I do, I guess, if I'm thinking from the consultant side and giving advice on that, is making sure that you don't pigeonhole yourself into one software that is a do-it-all software. Probably a similar reason why people will try to use that one software, like, for instance... And I'm not going to say a name because I don't want to get in trouble, but they'll use one software that they think is going to do everything, but it does one thing really, really well and maybe something else decently. But then everything else that it offers is just because people want that and they know they can make more money, but it's not really meant for that. So they're not doing a great job of it. It doesn't develop because they can only develop one area really well. It's expensive to keep developing everything and trying to keep it on par with every other company out there. So making sure that you're using different softwares to that's the best of what they're able to do and making sure that their plugin, their, their API is strong. And also being able to pull your information off of them if they ever stop being good. Now, mind you, it's not easy, just like moving new warehouses is not easy, but if they're failing and they're not holding up their end of the bargain, you can't let that affect your customer experience just because you don't want to move. And another big part of it is on from my end is renegotiating rates consistently as we grow, talking with our merchant service fees or any different area, just constantly trying to renegotiate rates, making sure that we're paying as little as possible and getting the best bang for our buck every time we're you know doing any type of big sale. We plan for the future, so we try to make sure that we're ready for a big sale and we'll be able to make more money as we renegotiate. Glad you brought that up. So prior to starting Rebar, what you do was working with merchants, did consulting, helping them find payment processing, billing platforms, CRMs, just trying to find the best fit. And inevitably, especially when you're talking about a merchant of any kind of scale, there's something unique about their business. And a SaaS platform is this walled garden of this is what we do. And yeah, you can configure and do some things. But at some point, we find that eh, you might meet eight out of 10 use cases, but you don't meet nine and 10. So either you live with the way they do it, or you end up implementing some kind of workaround, right, to make it work for you and your business, which might be the right short-term decision. But in a lot of cases, that eventually can come back as well, because now you're kind of pigeonholed into something. And when you want to take and implement use cases 11 through 15, they're like, yeah, we don't do any of those. 
So to your point, now you've got to make this big lift and shift over to something else, and which can be awfully painful. I mean, I'm glad you brought up CRM because <laughs> that one always stuck in my mind because it split at some point. And if you don't do your research and keep on it, you don't realize that CRM, which used to be all encompassing of just customer relation management software, now is CRM and EMS, email management software and customer relationship management. And so I remember the day when I was looking for a new CRM because the one we had was not really working for us anymore. We, I was looking into a new CRM and found that the CRM that we were looking at didn't send emails. It just held the data and managed the customers, you know, ranked them. And I remember thinking that was very strange because I thought, you know, all CRMs are supposed to send emails. That's just part of what they do. And then I learned about EMS and I'll, you know, it'd been a year or two since I'd last looked into it. So now all of a sudden there's a whole new type of software out there and it just keeps changing as we go. There's always some new, more robust software out there. And without constantly doing research, you just, you you're, fall behind. you're just going to fall behind. And the software that you use a lot of the time, you know, if you didn't choose a really strong company, like something that's going to last, it could start falling behind. Maybe the data that you're having isn't so accurate and can just really affect your company overall. So I've been doing subscriptions for about 20 years now. And back in the day of, it was very hard to start a subscription business and there were not tools out there that did it for you. And in almost every case, it was your only option was build. There was never a buy. You had to go out and build the system that you wanted that kind of met that need. And we have like become just light years in the past 20 years, especially the last five with just the this proliferation of tools that are out there that can do so much of this for you, which is fantastic for startups, right? You can start a subscription business in a week if you want to. It's not actually all that hard, but scaling it, growing, getting into new markets, new payment methods, acquiring customers from different channels. Now everything gets a lot more complicated, right? And to your point, Reed, some things are really good at one thing and then have bolted on a few other things to meet some sort of client demand, but it's not core to what they do. But they're, of course, they're going to try and sell it wherever they can, but it's important to kind of boil it down to, okay, what are you guys really good at? And sometimes that takes, I think, talking to other customers of theirs going, okay, tell me, really, what are these guys good at? And just how do you sort through that and, and really find one that's the right fit for you guys? A lot of research and comparing them. And like you said, just being in the industry, you know a lot of other people using a lot of other different softwares, getting feedback on how they feel about their software that they've been using, what are the pitfalls, and running through demos, making sure that you know what questions to ask. And one thing that we've you know learned in the last maybe two years is making sure that you ask even about the things that you would think are just expected, because there's been a few softwares that we've jumped on board with that a lot of things that you would think are just, this is expected. Any, but like with the CRM, if you jump onto a CRM that you think is going to be able to send out emails, and now all of a sudden they're telling you, no, we don't do emails. You have to have another software for that that needs to plug in with us. And we don't plug in with any of the normal ones. So <laughs> now you need to plug in with one of the ones that's obscure and it doesn't really do a good job. And they have all their own fees because that those fees can kill you. You know, they all of a sudden, if, they're, if an EMS is not just charging you a monthly fee and instead tries to charge you per thousand emails you send out or something like it, it could just kill you. So, you know, being prepared and really asking those types of questions, you know, there's some types of questions you would think shouldn't have to be asked, but you just have to ask them with everything. My favorite example of that, which is something very near and dear to me, is is payment processing, right? Especially if you're accepting credit cards. Most businesses, when they start up, go out to Stripe, and there's nothing wrong with Stripe, but you get into these blended interchange agreements, right? Where you're just paying like 2.75 or 3% plus 10 cents a transaction. 
And again, when you've got 100 customers or 1,000, who cares, right? That's kind of pennies difference. But as you scale up that business, at some point, an interchange plus arrangement is going to make a heck of a lot more sense when you're paying actual pass-through plus just some sort of processing fee, right? But you don't know what you don't know when you start out, number one. And number two, it's a little bit of a subjective, when is the right time to go to a bigger merchant processor and that type of agreement? Because there's always switching costs and there can be a lot of, of headache and just costs moving from one to the other. So if you found yourself in that situation, maybe not payment processing specifically, but something else where you were like, yeah, we thought this was fine and then got to some point and, and thought we really need to revisit this. That exact situation, yeah, about two years ago. Like I said, we had to, we were already going through a bunch of renegotiations of a bunch of other different software that we were using and merchant service was one of the ones we decided to go through. And we moved from one merchant service stripe and moved to another one that we were able to get a much better rate with because of our volume. A lot of the time, it seems like, you know, if you're with them, they don't want to really negotiate with you because they think they have you. You know, you go find someone else that wants to steal you and you can negotiate pretty hard because you can kind of whine and moan about, oh, having to move over is going to be such a headache. I don't know if I want to do it. And then, you know, you start pitching back to the other one saying, look, I, I'm going to leave because this rate is I'm getting a better rate somewhere else. Eh, it's just like negotiating for a car. You just negotiate <laughs> a bunch of different car dealers and, and, and pit them against each other. Otherwise, it's hard to negotiate against one person if they're not willing to budge at all. Especially when you're the little guy. Well, I can tell you that no matter the scale, that doesn't change. On our consulting side of the business, we help Fortune 500 companies go out and renegotiate these payment processing agreements. And we're talking of fractions of pennies per transactions, but the incumbent knows they're the incumbent. And if you're talking about a major e-com company or a major retailer, they know that it's going to cost millions of dollars for somebody to switch from processor A to B to go through all of that change. And they bring that into the negotiation, kind of knowing that they've, they've got you a little bit there. But at the same token, there's couple of other ones that would love to have that business and are sometimes put up some pretty hefty incentives to get somebody to make that change. But you're right. Number one, you just got to negotiate. Do as much research as you possibly can to be informed about what you're getting yourself into. And then take the time to go out and talk to more than one or two. Go get a few quotes and see the differences. And by the way, the cheapest, even though payment processing is a bit of a commodity, the cheapest is by far not always the best. Having somebody that knows your your industry, your vertical, who can service your account and help you work through problems and monitor chargebacks and everything that's important to your types of business and subscription is absolutely no exception. Some merchant processors are great at subscription, others just kind of dabble in it. And that makes a really big difference. Have you seen that as well? Not going for the cheapest is really one of the biggest pieces of advice I'd always give people is don't go for the cheapest. Find the cheapest that you can get for the best quality that you can get because a lot of people they'll prioritize cheap they'll look at it in the short run and they'll think oh this is going to save me you know thousands or even hundreds of thousands or millions but then it ends up costing them more because they start losing people and the amount of time that they have to spend trying to figure out what's going wrong it ends up being more of a headache than it's worth you know just do a better job negotiating with the ones that you know you want to go with and honestly one way that you can always find out an easy simple way to find out if the one is not a good one to go with and they're just giving you a really cheap rate and you should be aware of that is if you're trying to use them in your negotiation tactics against another, like say merchant service, we'll just use that for example. Like, you know, if you're negotiating with Stripe trying to get a better rate and then you try to go to another merchant service that starts with an A and you say, 
I want to get better rates. And they say, okay, we'll give it to you. We'll give you the best rates that you can possibly get. And you're just stunned. You're like, this is going to save me thousands or hundreds of thousands. And then you go back to Stripe and you say, look, these people gave us this rate. Can you match it? And they say, oh, no, we're not going to match that because we don't deal with that. They're, that company isn't one we'll match against. And then you realize, oh, that company's, there's probably a reason their rate is so low. There's some places you can like save a dollar, but merchant service fees, recurring billing, your cart, your platform, that you don't want to save a buck. You want to get as best as you can. Actually, recurring billing, I was thinking about it earlier, is funny to think that only in the last 10 years has that even really become a thing. And now every merchant service is jumping on the recurring billing software style. But before, there was nowhere. Like you were saying, with like these subscription boxes, we couldn't find anything that would just automatically rebuild all of our customers. We just had to send them invoices and hope that they would pay and re-up. I'm glad you brought that up since that's what we do, obviously. But, you know, I think there's also this Stripe and others, acquires especially, have built some sort of recurring engine into their platforms. Most of them have at this point. And they can take a credit card and charge it $10 on the fifth of the month every month. They can do that. And again, probably makes sense for some startups. But again, you kind of get to some point and, hey, I might be leaving 5% of my transactions on the floor each month because of, of declines, right? wasn't able to collect. So the way that a system recycles those transactions, when it presents them to what type of card, how many times you try before you finally give up, when you communicate with the customer of something that has happened, do you have you implemented account updater? Is all of this compliant with the new Visa MasterCard rules around stored credentials? You know, all of these things start coming into play, right? And that's where I think a more tailored solution towards specifically subscription recurring billing, and there's more out there than just ours, make a heck of a lot more sense. So, and those tools aren't just for that piece of your business and that can apply to the marketing side and the fulfillment and order management, CRM, you name it. But there are different solutions out there for subscription that don't always work in retail or even general e-commerce. Just making sure all the plugins work. That's gotta be one of the biggest problems that any business that's doing anything on e-commerce or especially subscription-based business, SaaS or physical deals with is there's just all these different platforms that do everything and you need them to all plug in, but they're all building for different reasons. And if they don't see the reason why it should be plugged into the other one, then they don't build an API for it and you need to build a workaround or use it. That's a really good point. Seems like everybody today has got that page on their website where they list all of the other brands that we talk to or have integrated with. And it seems like they'll put it on that slide if they've done a single API call before and you know, sometimes just a very basic integration and be like, hey, we talked to Salesforce. Isn't it great? I'm sure you've seen that too. What's next for you guys in terms of how you scale your business to the next level? Is it a new set of products going into a new market, a new offering? What are you guys seeing? I guess one of the new things that we started working on is creating a new style um, purchasing like safety. So a lot of the time we see people especially with the subscription box business, it's really hard to give like refunds because especially with a mystery box like ours, people are buying it and if they're not happy, they want to do like a refund or, or something like that. And it's hard because then you have to take the product back, but you can't resell it. It has to be put aside at that point. But we've found that over the years, we've seen a really, really high, much higher than the average retention rate um, and lifetime value of the customer. And so we've decided to start giving a first time guarantee which means that if you buy it and you try it and you don't like it, send it back, tried, used, doesn't matter because we're not going to resell it anyway. So just send it back and we'll send you a refund. And so that's something that we've been, that we decided to roll out recently because we feel like it, you know, it'll help people trust our, our product because 
we put a lot of effort into every month because Brenda believes that, you know, this could be everybody's first month. So we have to really give it our all every single month. And so we want to make sure that everybody feels really safe, even though it's a mystery. And the reason we kept it as a mystery is because sometimes people aren't willing to try something if they think they're not going to like it. They've never tried it. Look at children with broccoli. They don't even know what it is, but they look at it. (laughs) You have to sometimes, quote unquote, force feed people something that they might not think they're going to like, and then they end up loving it. In fact, one of our influencers that we've worked with for a very long time thought she hated watercolor pencils. She just hated them. And we finally sent her a box of watercolor pencils and she got them and she opened them. And when she opened it, she was like, oh no, watercolor pencils, I'm going to hate this because she always thought she hated them because she's a color pencil artist. So watercolor pencils into her are kind of like, she'll like turn her nose down at them, you know, or up at them. And then she tried them and she loved them. And then she started doing a lot of watercolor pencil artwork and getting really into it. And so, you know. There was a specific line that this manufacturer had. It's like an ink and a block. And so instead of being, you know, a liquid. And so she tried it and she loved it. She started buying bigger sets. Ended up being actually the... the face uh, of the company, yeah. Well, no, she, she did the, the artwork for, for an upcoming she did line. She marketing for them as well and became the face for a little bit, yeah. So things like that, you know, where... And part of the model of subscription boxes is a mystery, right? That's part of the box and, and just getting that surprise. But we really feel like if you give it a shot, you really like it. And if you don't, then we're absolutely willing to give you your money back for it. So that's something new that we haven't really seen on other subscription boxes, but we just, we want to give that a try. So that's kind of our new direction at the moment. Kudos to you guys for not giving into the temptation of maybe getting some feedback saying, hey, I really want to know what I'm going to be getting or, or, or thinking that that might help with conversion on the, on the site getting subscribers, but holding true to what you guys are trying to do, which is to actually get people to try new things. And your analogy to a kid could not be more perfect because it's a daily occurrence with my son to go, how do you know you don't like this? You haven't even tried it yet. How can you possibly know that yet? (laughs) Right? That's why we have the previous projects because we know that, you know, there are some people where you just don't want to take that risk that's available as well. But yeah, we we find that a lot of the time they'll try like one, maybe two and then they trust what we're sending and then they buy the, the subscription because now they know, okay, they, they're at least sending quality product. Let's see if I'm going to like the things that they send this month. And then the thing, a little surprise for them every month. And I think a lot of people like that nowadays. Well, I have loved hearing the story of, of you guys and how you started this business and where you're focused. And thanks so much for everything that you guys have shared today in terms of your experiences. I'm sure it's been very valuable to the listeners. If any of them want to check out the product or maybe get in contact with you guys to ask some questions, where can they go? Well, I can just smartartbox.com. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> awesome. Well, guys, thanks again so much. Really enjoyed our, our conversation today. A lot of great insights there and uh, best of luck to you guys. Thank you so much, Nick. It was a pleasure talking to you. Take care. You too. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Subscription Scale, sponsored by Rebar Technology. If something we said today resonated with you, please subscribe, rate, and download our podcast and share this episode with your network.